Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I have with me this week the writer and broadcaster Michael Rosen, whose latest book is The Disappearance of Emile Zola, Love, Literature and the Dreyfus Case. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Sam. Look, I wanted to start by asking a very obvious and boring question, which is that you're sort of best known in this country for writing children's literature. You know, we're going on a bear hunt and so forth. And we're going on a Zola hunt, a slightly different proposition. How, what got you interested in Zola? I guess in a way I've always been interested in Zola since I did A-level French, um, which is a long time ago. And Zola can exist in sort of a variety of ways with us. It can be because you've read him in French, you've read him in English, you've seen Thérèse Raquin on the television or at the theatre, dramatisation of the novel, or because of this other life that he led, which was taking up the case of Alfred Dreyfus, who was a Jewish army officer. So he took up this case and produced something that's become proverbial, a front page of a newspaper with the phrase, j'accuse, I accuse. And of course, we can use this, journalists and and the rest of us, we can suddenly announce j'accuse, and it gives us a certain kind of weight, doesn't it? We're suddenly taking it on, even if we don't know where it comes from. So Zola exists in a variety of ways, and I suppose all I can say is he sort of popped in and out of my life for... I don't know, 30 or 40 years one way or another. And so I then came across this story that people who are fans of Zola know anyway that he came to England. Yes, yeah, so it's not quite a disappearance. He just sort of relocates to... Yes, it, from a French point of view, he disappeared. Yeah. They didn't, to start off with, have any idea where he'd gone. Some suggest, thought that he might have popped off to see Ibsen and others thought he was in Switzerland and uh, they genuinely didn't know and um, Zola's friends were lying about it anyway in order to cover his tracks. But, you know, he didn't... Well, it, he's in a way disappeared when he came here because, I mean, he didn't deliberately hide very much but he did seem to walk about a bit incognito, if that makes sense. Like that line from Desperately Seeking Susan, you know, I thought you were dead, Susan. No, just in New Jersey. And he's... He's gone from Paris to sort of Wimbledon and Norwood. Yes, and, and Walton-on-Thames and Weybridge. <laughs> yes, that's right. And there he is in the Queen's Hotel on Church Road in Upper Norwood, yes. But it was quite a, it was quite a kind of... I mean, actually, his leaving was quite a desperate, urgent thing to do. I mean, he was, he was on trial, wasn't he? Or he, mm. was, he was being sued. That's right. He's on the run. You know, we have to be clear. He was sentenced to a year imprisonment and a fine of 3,000 francs. And he was ready to face that. But his friends, who were part of the pro-Dreyfus camp, if you like, said, no, it's better if you go. So his daughter, in fact, in her little memoir about him, was quite insistent that he really didn't want to go. And so they basically stuffed him on a train at the Gare du Nord, and he arrived at Victoria Station with, uh, with no one to meet him. And no great idea. There's a lovely little detail in your book about how he, he hails a taxi, doesn't he? He's yes, Grosvenor Hotel. to go to the Grosvenor Hotel because Georges Clemenceau had put on a piece of paper for him, you know, uh, go to the Grosvenor Hotel, and he just assumed it would need a taxi, whereas, in fact, it's around about 100 metre, 100 to 150 metre walk. And the taxi blokes were engaging with him and going, well, you know, you don't want this cab, Gov. But, of course, he didn't know what... He couldn't speak English. So that's the other slightly odd thing, is that, of course, he's come to a country where he really has no English at all. And what did he make of England? I mean, you said that he had some moans about the food. Mm, That's right. He was very curious. He'd been here before. He'd been here in 1893. This was 1898. So he'd been here five years before. But when he came five years before, 
He was fated. I mean, you cannot imagine what a celebrity he was. I mean, I don't know, he was a sort of, what would be the equivalent? We don't have writers or celebs so much these days, but I mean, George Clooney, you know, he was sort of fated. You imagine he was at Crystal Palace, and this was the palace before it burnt down, 4,000 guests all clapping and cheering and standing up and calling out his name, and um, firework display with his portrait in the sky. So that's five years before, and, and he thought, I finally made it, because the history of Zola in England is full of censorship and all sorts of things. So he thought, well, wow, these people across the channel, they like me. And then he comes the second time, and of course he does find it all a bit drab and lonely. He refers to his room as a chabrac de chambre, and chabrac is quite a sort of cursy, slangy word. It actually means the the cloth that goes under the saddle. Um, <laughs> it's sort of, you know, this stinking, foul place. He moans about the temperature. He says, why don't the Brits have shutters, for goodness sake, in the summer? It's all so hot. He can't work out the gravy. He discovers that the way the Brits at that time were making gravy was to pour boiling water on the meat in order to get a bit of stock out of it and then turn it into gravy. He was just appalled, because French always start with a roux, don't they? Yeah. So he just thought, this is just so uncivilised, he cannot believe it. He quite liked roasts, couldn't understand why we eat fruit tart hot. He just thought that was just uncivilised. So there's a lot of that kind of complaining. He was very intrigued by the suburbs of Crystal Palace. He was very interested in buildings and how people live and how people live together. He studied the kind of utopian socialist Charles Fourier and he was very intrigued. He sort of thought that these terraces that we Brits live in were some sort of communalist living, a bit like the phalanstery that Fourier talked about, this idea of communal workplaces. And in fact, he went on to write a book uh, slightly based in one of those. So he was very, very intrigued, and he, he took photographs, and he took many photographs of Crystal Palace itself. He's got some of them in the book. Mm. Well, yes. I mean, insofar as you can be a well-known amateur photographer, I know that sort of doesn't quite make sense, but that's what he was. He had, he had studied photography, so you know he'd made a huge pile of money from his books. He was, he was a bestseller all over the world, made a huge pile of money, and like a lot of people who make a lot of money suddenly from quite poor background, you go, oh, I'll take up an expensive hobby. And so his expensive hobby was photography. And for 20 years or more, more like 30 probably, he was taking photographs. And he became fascinated in using his camera to take what we might call topography. So looking out of the window of this office, you know, it's a very ordinary scene of a bit of a park and houses and cars. He would have loved that, yes? He took portraits of his family and he took some action portraits, some of the earliest of his children running towards him, totally unremarkable now, but at the time, extraordinary. And then he also went in for a bit of slightly fancy salon photography, dressing up, not his wife, but the lady with whom he had two children, Jeanne Rosereau, and he would dress her up in sort of one moment as a Sarah Bernhardt outfit, and the next, I think the word is a shift, I'm not an expert on these things, but I would call it a sheet, but anyway, and not a lot else by the looks of it, and he would dress her up and get her to take up poses well for somebody who wasn't an actress it must have been quite painful but anyway so he's got a variety of ways of, of taking photographs and I think I've seen the figure 5,000 photos but I mean he really took hundreds and one of his first demands when he came here was get my cameras I want them here and he calls them a jumel you know it was like a sort of had a, a focusing thing using a sort of binocular lens and he was off down by the side of the Thames, snapping away. On yes. his bicycle. Yes, on well, his actually, bicycle. In mentioning the, the subject of his photographs, you do raise something that's you know quite important in this book, I think, that the midnight flit isn't quite so easy when you have such an irregular domestic life as Zola had. I mean, he yes. kind of had 
two wives, really, didn't two he? Two wives, yeah. two families in a way. I mean, it's regular in one sense that if you look at the late 19th century bourgeoisie in France, particularly in Paris, it does rather look as if the male habit of this time was to have a wife and a mistress. But your mistress, if that's the way it was, you would tidy away, and much more scandalously, if you happen to have had a baby with your mistress, you did various things to get rid of it. And the reason why I'm mentioning it is because this is of great concern to Zola. So meanwhile, with Zola, he does the opposite. He basically is a bigamist. I mean, he even writes to his wife as chère femme, which, of course, does mean literally dear woman, but the word femme also means wife. How does he write to Jeanne, the mother of his two children? Chère femme. He does exactly the same. So, I mean, you could say, well, one means dear wife and the other one means my dear woman or dear lady or something. But at the end of the day, he's equalised the two. And basically, throughout his life, uh, once he's started this relationship with Jeanne, she lives wherever he does, nearby. And there's an arrangement with his wife, Alexandrine, that he sleeps with Alexandrine, he spends the morning with Alexandrine, and in the afternoon he toddles off to see Jeanne and the children, and then later comes back to Alexandrine. And so he, he had, in any given day, whether he was in the centre of Paris, in his west of Paris suburban village, or on holiday, there was Jeanne down the road. This wasn't something that was arrived at easily, obviously, because you describe how... Because Jeanne was a sort of lady's maid initially, I think, mm. to his wife, wasn't mm. she? And she, when she found out that he'd had children with this, and that this had been going on, she sort of smashed up the room, and there's a very poignant bit in it where she writes to him saying something like, two years after I discovered all this was going on, I said my own life was over. How do you think Alexandrine kind of managed this? It seems like she had a very tough time of it. Well, any researcher on this, you have limited materials for looking at how the women viewed what was going on. So you have Denise, the daughter's view, and then you have Zola's letters, which, of course, occasionally include things that either woman has said, and then a few letters from Alexandrine, very few, and none from Jeanne. So they must have been destroyed. So... What Jeanne thought about all this is very hard to sort of figure out, apart from a little bit of family folklore, when I spoke to Zola's great-granddaughter. Alexandrine, I mean, it's difficult to know. I mean, she obviously wanted to stay with him. So she seems to have accepted a situation in which this is what Zola is and does. He has this relationship with this woman who I utterly entrusted when she came into my house, age 20, and who looked after my underwear, basically, that, you know, you had someone who, a couturier, who, who sewed, yes, who sewed your underwear. And, of course, 19th century underwear was very complicated, corsets and all that. She would have dressed Alexandrine, so the intimacy is, you know, quite difficult, you can see. And then she finds out, yes, that Zola not only has a relationship with Jeanne, but has had two children, whereas Alexandrine has had no child with Zola. When she expresses herself in the letters that we've got, it is with immense pain. I mean, she says, as, as you just said, and then says, all that's left for me now is to do good to others or for others. And then she also at times says, oh, how, you know, at one point he, said, he sends some flowers, I think, and uh, he says, hope, hope she'll be happy. And back comes the stinging rebuke, you know, if you think I can be happy, how little you know me. And yet at other times, there are these gorgeous little pet names that they call each other, Lulu and Chien Chat and, you know, Dog Cat and all the rest of it. And obviously there's some tenderness left, but, I mean, all one can presume at the end of the day is that it was incredibly difficult for both women. 
and neither woman said no and walked away from it. Oh, like Philip Larkin's situation. <laughs> well, indeed. I mean, the, the situations, you know, the, there'll be people listening who will be familiar with situations like that, and people accept things that people on the outside say, well, you know, are you a fool or are you, are you a masochist or something like that? And you, you can't know from the outside what the compensations are for the pain. All you can see is that he is utterly devoted to both women, unless we assume that his letters are lies and whatever, I don't. He's utterly devoted to the children, and one's a boy and one's a girl, so he actually re responds to them in rather different ways. This is his life, and if anybody comments on it at this stage, he is furious. I mean, when his great friend, Desmoulins, who's an artist friend who's basically running around after him, you know, making sure he's all right, and he says, maybe not bring... Jeanne hmm? and the kids because it's a compromise yes this will you know people will come and see and then you'll be in a sort of slightly tricky position he lets rip Zola in a letter and he uses the phrase je m'en fous je m'en fous is more than slang it's it's pretty 19th century to write in a letter je m'en fous I mean it's I don't give a shit or something like that but you know think of how many literary people in English you would find the equivalent of je m'en fous but he says it you know just leave me alone I've got had enough bother I've taken on this Dreyfus case, leave me to have my own life, you know. So he's defending himself, he's defending his corner, which again is quite interesting because usually the, the, the bourgeois habit is you tidy away your mistress. It's assumed these bourgeois men had a mistress, but it, the, the discretion was to tidy them away. When you talk about him defending his corner, I mean, come back to Dreyfus, he didn't have to stick up for Dreyfus, did he? I mean, he didn't have, as it were, skin in the game. Absolutely not. You know, here is this person, you know, like Dickens or Hardy, you know, this sort of great 19th century writer. He's writing about Paris. He's massively popular in France and in all over the world. And then along comes this case of a Jewish army officer who's found guilty of espionage. Why take it up? At this time, you could say that France was split down the middle with, loosely put, a monarchist official Catholic hierarchy and nationalist side, won't call it a party, totally interfused with anti-Semitism. You know, we sometimes use the word anti-Semitism as a sort of word of abuse. There were, newspapers in France could say, this is an anti-Semitic paper. They would put it on the front. You would say, you can see, you see the front of uh, Libre Parole and some of the other newspapers, and it says, anti-Semitic newspaper. So it wasn't anything to be ashamed of. So that's sort of one half and then on the other side, you've got a, a group of people, loosely liberals, socialists, anarchists, some parts of the Jewish community, and the Protestant community came on board. So France is split down the middle on this. You know, when a writer says, I'm totally going for this, you basically write off 50% of your audience in something like this. I mean, you know, the equivalent maybe is, say, around segregation in the States, for a white writer to take on a cause, say, in the southern states, Jim Crow laws and so on, bam, you've, you've lost your audience straight away. And that's, that's in fact, what happened. Yeah, it, He really didn't need to do it, and he massively lost income and was abused. I mean, I, you know, it's impossible to describe. I mean, I'm not sure I've done it well enough in the book. The level of abuse, you know, I've reproduced a, a little picture of Zola as a pig smearing excrement on the map of France. That's how half of France, if you like, half of the, the fourth estate, depicted him as this sort of filthy, Jew-loving liar who was part of the wicked Jewish syndicate. I mean, that's how he was portrayed. And did the Brits, when he came here, I mean, 
you know, we know traditionally we always hate the French. Did that help them to take him up? I mean, was the yes, was he warmly I, seen? Well, I under- combed through the papers with the help of a wonderful researcher putting in Dreyfus Zola, Dreyfus Zola, right from the time of the trial and from Jacques, sorry, right from the time of Jacques and then through to him going home and Dreyfus eventually being pardoned and so on. And I went through them to see. And by and large, the British newspapers thought his stand was commendable. They could see that the original case against Dreyfus had, you know, shot through with holes. And for Dreyfus to stand up, some of them didn't like the way Jacques was written. They didn't like that sort of stand up and I'm telling you and I'm accusing the ruling order sort of way in which he phrased it. But then quite soon afterwards, as his own trial started happening, you can see the, uh, the London papers and the London reviews and magazines and so on um, sympathising, supporting him. Yes, and pretty well across the board. Yes, I mean, Telegraph Times, Manchester Guardian, yeah, taking him up. There's also a kind of, I mean, he's still writing, he's still writing his fiction while he's in England. There's a sort of literary pivot you identify in this this period. I don't know how much you ascribe it to his exile, but, you know, the sort it of German It pre- slightly precedes, thing, yes, things. it precedes it. Basically, he got to the end of the Rougon-Macquart cycle of novels, the ones that we mostly know, like Germinal, Thérèse Raquin, those. He then had a sort of little interlude before he came here, where he wrote his city trilogy of Paris, Lourdes, and I'm going to forget the third city. And so he, he wrote that, and then there's a little bit of a lull, and he starts thinking about what he regards as a disaster that's happening in France. The birth rate is going down, and he identifies that with official and unofficial birth control. So he identifies what's going on in France is that bourgeois couples are practising what we call coitus interruptus, that people are not having sex, and sex is a joy and we should be doing it. And then he also identifies stuff that's much more nasty. Abortions, infanticides, late abortions, I mean, infanticide, and even nastier, enfant trouvé. So we have a foundling hospital here in London that was actually a very commendable institution. These, these maisons d'enfant trouvé, they were foundling hospitals. Basically what would happen is that women who had babies would bring their babies to these foundling hospitals and go. What then happened was that the babies were farmed out to the provinces where people would take money to take the baby and then get rid of the baby. And Zola had identified this range of abuses and then so quite the opposite of where the social reformers, the Fabians and the like in this country and the people in favour of birth control were saying this is the way poverty and the working classes are going to save themselves. Famous people like Mari Stopes or H.G. Wells, this was their position. They were eugenicists as well and said, you know, stop them breeding and then, you know, and then the working class will be saved. So it was a bit on the back of Malthus, you know, the person who thought that poverty was caused by overpopulation and so on. Zola is taking precisely the opposite view. He's saying we must end these practices of preventing having babies because the birth rate is going down in France. Look at Germany next door. The population has gone up over the last 20 years. So there's a lot of looking over the shoulder. And that's what, if you like, pushes Zola into a new way of writing. He's going to write a utopian novel. He said, I've, I've done dissection. That's the word he used. I've done that, you know, germinal stuff, scrutinising the lower orders and, and prostitutes and giving them dignity and saying, what are we doing living like this with these kinds of people? I mean, he also had a strange vein of that poverty was slightly caused by heredity, but we won't go into that. But now he's got a new agenda. He's going to write utopian novels, and these will 
promote solutions. And so the solution to, to the issue of this birth control and infanticide and the rest, the solution is that women must have lots of babies and do lots of breastfeeding. And so this novel that he writes here in London, in the very places you said, Weybridge, Walton-on-Thames, Upper Norwood, is a kind of two halves to the novel. One half is looking at these terrible things going on, and boy, does he describe them. That's why they've never been translated into English, because they are, they are too horrific. I mean, I put one passage in, and it... You know, I, I do sort of like turn over the page myself. I'm sort of, right, I think it's okay I put it in, but I mean, you know. You went back and read them in the French. I, yes, yeah. that's right. And then, so there is a passage that, that's translated from Fécondité, was the novel he was writing, which was translated at the time as Fruitfulness. And then the other half of the novel is of this family that just gets makes lots and lots of babies, and they just get more and more wealthy. And I think in the end they have somewhere maybe 18 children, I think it is. And then there's a sort of final weirdness they then go off to Africa and uh, tell the natives that this is what you must do in order to flourish and to be uh, fecund and fruitful. So, you know, it's a very odd novel. And as I say, it's never been translated in full into English. There's, a, there's two versions of it heavily abridged, one by his main translator in this country, Ernest Vizitelli, and another one done in New York. So it's a very odd novel. I mean, some parts of it, I think, read absolutely brilliantly, but you kind of recoil as this sort of peon to, I, mean, I don't know, it's, it's sort of just kind of fertility for its own sake sort of thing. You recoil from that, and then when it gets all so sort of patronising and sort of colonial, and, you know, you recoil from that. But the passages, you know, around the, what he regards as a, a, an abuse, I think are fantastic. Story, that, as you tell it, has this sort of slightly poignant ending because he gets, comes back to France, you know, as Dreyfus is sort of starting to clear up. But if I'm remembering it rightly, he's... Alive to see Dreyfus released, but not to see him fully pardoned, is that...? Yes, what happens is a little complicated set of things happen with Dreyfus that are basically all fudges. So what actually happened was that Dreyfus came back from Devil's Island, and that was okay for Zola then to come back to France, so he came back. He was tried, but he was found guilty again. The pro-Dreyfus camp were in despair. I mean, this was awful. And then the the ruling order changed and a new, more pro-Dreyfus prime minister came in, or president, and he was, he was pardoned. And there was a big demonstration in this country, actually, just two days before, so whether that had any effect. But, you know, Hyde Park was, had 70 or 80,000 people in it demonstrating on behalf of Dreyfus. So, yes, he was pardoned. But then was something rather curious... The government issued an amnesty to everybody. It's kind of odd, really, because Zola is not happy about this at all, because this meant that all the people who were guilty of finding Dreyfus guilty, all the people who framed him up and who trial-rigged afterwards, all got off. But, of course, he did as well, because technically he was still guilty. But there is one other irony to it all, is that technically Dreyfus is still guilty. That's because he was found guilty by the army, the army, by the court-martial. Now, I'm not exactly sure how the law works in this country, but what people have said, and I'm not absolutely sure how it works in France, but what people have said is that the army have never had to pardon Dreyfus. So the court... I mean, technically... So they say in the end of news reports, the case continues. Well, yes, and I think that there is a tiny group of people, I think, who, who are still asking for justice for Dreyfus because... The army has never had to face up to the fact that he was framed. 
So, of course, the government is ultimately the government of the day, and I suppose you could argue that the Prime Minister or the President is the uh, Chief of Staff of the Army or whatever the official positions are, but the Army itself has never pardoned him, which is extraordinary. And there is a suggestion in the book, or more than a suggestion, that actually his support for Dreyfus in the end actually cost Zola his life. Yes. So what happened was a rather awful night. So, as we know, Zola sleeps with Alexandrine at night, and they were in their Paris apartment, and there was a blocked flue. Now, it seems as if Alexandrine got up, probably to go to the loo. She didn't open the window, and then she was too weak to save Zola. He seems to have fallen out of bed and was too weak to save him. So he died of carbon monoxide poisoning. You know, it was a briquette fire, you know, made from coal. So there was a brief investigation, and nobody. it was found that the flu was blocked, but that it wasn't done deliberately. But then many years later, somebody confessed, that I think this is 1927, I'm not looking back at the book, confessed to having blocked the flu to somebody else, who then, when he was virtually on his deathbed in 1953, published an article saying, this man told me he blocked the flu, and he did it because he was an anti-Dreyfus person. Now, of course, that's all hearsay. All we know is the flu was blocked and that somebody says that somebody said he did it. So it's very much he says, he says. And as far as I know, there's no further evidence. And, I mean, the only thing that slightly kind of bothers you, isn't it, is, is could it really be that easy to, just by blocking a flu, to, for you to get carbon monoxide poisoning? I mean, they must have done it pretty thoroughly. I mean, you know, carbon monoxide is, is because you can't really smell it. All you smell is, you know, a little bit of the smoke sort of thing. Smoke. And obviously if the windows window. were closed, and in the great French tradition you close the shutters as well, of course, and you shut the door, then there's no fresh air coming through. But the flu itself must have been blocked pretty thoroughly. Now, obviously, flus get blocked because of stuff falling down it. So I would lean towards the idea that somebody did it deliberately. Just That's just a hunch, that somebody did it deliberately maybe to give him a warning, not thinking necessarily that this would finish him off. So, you know, it's kind of manslaughter rather than murder, you know. But awful, all the same. Last question, there's a tiny coda to the book, which throws this whole kind of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism thing forward, you know, another 40, 50 years. And you describe how one of your ancestors and one of Zola's descendants were on the same transport. Dreyfus's, not Zola's. One of Dreyfus's yes. descendants. Sorry, of course it was Joseph yes. Zola, wasn't Joseph. That's right. So let's remind ourselves that the Nazis invade France and France, some people in France set up a regime that we know as Vichy, because its headquarters were in Vichy. And then Vichy France had different ways of, I'll put this in inverted commas, dealing with the Jews. So they said of their own Jews, they're ours. Go away, German regime. Go away. We'll, we'll deal with them ourselves. And so they brought in a whole set of pretty stringent laws against Jews, including, with the incredible word, Aryanizing their property. So you have Aryanization, I can hardly say it, which the Vichy regime imposed on all Jews. But then when the Nazis said, we want you to hand them over, right, because that's what the Nazis did. Wherever they were, they demanded of the countries that they occupied, hand them over. So what does Vichy do? It says, no, you can't have our French-born Jews. They're in fact covered by the, the constitution of the revolution. But, of course, in France at this time, there was somewhere in the region of 75, between 75 and 80,000 foreign-born Jews, some of whom had been around for decades and some who had literally just arrived fleeing from Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia and so on. 
And amongst these are my relatives. They are my father's uncles. And the Vichy regime collaborated with the Nazis and provided what are called in French les fichiers juifs, basically Jewish lists, lists of Jews, and said, here they are, and then you can read them, and it has the name and the age, the date of birth, and where they were born. So my father's uncle, my great-uncle, uh, the one who appears on the lists, he was born in a place called Oswiecim, which is Polish for Auschwitz. So that's where he was actually born. He was turned in, and if you follow the records, which I have, you can see that he disappeared, fled to Nice, which was occupied by the Italians, who were protecting the Jews, and a lot of Jews were fleeing to Nice. So Italy is in the war. There's a guy issuing false passports. He's, he's requisitioned two boats, and he's pleading with Dwight D. Eisenhower, who's fighting against the Italians, don't declare the armistice in public because I need a few more days to get the Jews out. Eisenhower is very proud that he's defeated, led the Allies and defeated Italy, so he announces it on the Saturday. Three days later, the Nazis march into that corner of France and all the Jews are waiting in the hotels for their false passports. And though some got out, those in the hotels didn't, and amongst them was my father's uncle, uh, Yeshi Rosen, that's a sort of nickname, he was in the uh, Hotel Excelsior and he was lifted and uh, with his wife and taken to Drancy, the transit camp, and then to Auschwitz on Convoy 62. And then I was looking through Dreyfus and what happened to his descendants and one of them, his granddaughter, and I noticed it was the same convoy. So with an incredible, it's a sort of chilling moment, do you know, when you, you sort of read something and you, you're just thinking, oh, oh dear, oh, no. You know, this Dreyfus thing. And then suddenly you see Convoi 62 and you're thinking, oh my God, they could even possibly in that terrible situation have met each other. I mean, unlikely because, you know, they were crammed into cattle trucks as we know. And at the other end they were all divided up into work details and to be exterminated. So yes, an extraordinary and awful coincidence and very eerie really, very eerie. Michael Rosen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sam. And if you were thrilled and titillated by this week's podcast, there's plenty more to delight you in the book section of the magazine. We have Philip Hensher reviewing a natural and unnatural history of cannibalism. Tasty. Joanne Harris addresses Neil Gaiman's take on the Norse myths. Michael Belloff writes a timely review about a book about the role of politics in the life of America's Supreme Court. And we also have John Hare on The Great Explorers of the Deserts and Matt Thorne applauding the novel he considers Paul Oster's masterpiece. Enjoy. Enjoy.